0: Today we're going to be in uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul writes to a church that he loved dearly that needed a whole bunch of help. And so if you're not there already, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read the first four verses to kind of set us up for where we're going, and then the last few verses, because the goal is going to be to cover the whole chapter today, Uh, not every verse. Don't worry if you're a regular. I know we have baptisms coming up at some point, but 1 Corinthians 15, this is how Paul starts it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then going toward the end of the chapter, in verse 54... knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain let's pray lord in many ways this is similar to what we do every week we come we gather we pray we sing we open your word and we ask for your help and lord we need your help again today we ask that you would open our eyes open our eyes to the wonderful things that you have for us in your word And Lord, today, uh, we come to a place of celebration, uh, the central focal point of our Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Lord, pierce our hearts with your truth. Bring us to a place not just of understanding, but of obedience and worship. Lord, I pray specifically for those who have heard this, but maybe have never heard who this has gone into the ears and maybe even into the brain, but it's never actually touched the heart. Lord, I pray that perhaps in your grace and mercy, you would allow someone to hear and understand for the first time. And Lord, for those of us who have heard and responded, maybe even for many years, I pray that you would bring us not some new insight or radically different understanding, but Lord, return to us the joy of our salvation. Remind us of that simple truth that we serve a living Savior. Lord, I pray that you would make your word clear to us. We know that it's the gospel that's the power of salvation. So Lord, save us, we pray. Amen. Now, when we come to a place like 1 Corinthians 15, it's tempting to just kind of jump right in, uh, but we have to understand something about the letter that Paul is writing and the people that he's writing to. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a church uh, that is a mess in many ways. And while that might not sound particularly good, it can be somewhat comforting uh, because many of us gathered here today are in one degree or another something of a mess. Um, maybe your impression of the church is that church isn't for you because you're too much of a mess for the church. Well, understand that God calls together a people, not a collection of perfect people, but a collection of people who are saved by grace, who need mercy and forgiveness because we fall and we fail and nobody's background, nobody's past is clean. Or maybe you come to the church maybe once or twice a year and you would come more, but you can't seem to find a church that's actually worthy of your attendance. Maybe all you see when you look at the church is a gathering of messy people, hypocrites maybe even. Understand uh, that, first of all, there is no perfect church. This certainly isn't one, but understand that, rightly understood, there's no hypocrisy here because we freely admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. God gave His church a high standard, a standard that we strive to meet but fall short of, but we are a gathering of people who, by God's grace, are moving toward maturity and faith, And so wherever you land on that spectrum, somewhere in the middle, between joyful attender, between skeptical newcomer, between drug here by somebody who had the best of intentions, understand that Paul is writing to a church that can relate to sin and failure. This church in particular was divisive. Uh, This church didn't handle marriage very well. This church didn't handle uh, the spiritual gifts very well. This church didn't handle things like communion very well. Uh, This church often didn't do church very well. But as Paul writes to them, uh, he knows absolutely what they struggle with, but he never calls them to just kind of buck up and do better. He reminds them of true things and then calls them in faith to walk in obedience. And Paul's understanding is that as they mature in their faith, as they grow in their knowledge of the Lord, that they'll grow in their maturity and in their understanding and that that will lead to obedience. And so the same thing, I hope, will be true of us. That as we grow in our knowledge of who God is, that he brings us to worship and ultimately to obedience. And so Paul writes for 14 chapters about very important things. He corrects their misunderstandings. He calls them to account for their failures. He encourages them in their strengths. And then he comes to chapter 15 and he says, at the end of it all, this is the important thing. In chapter 15, there's a truth that the whole thing hinges on and that's the idea of resurrection. Because Paul understands if you don't get resurrection right, then the rest of it just kind of falls apart. So we're going to work through that today, and we're going to understand the central truth of the Christian faith. And that is the reality of the gospel that is found in the resurrection. So when we open up 1 Corinthians 15, first of all, that's what we see. We see the gospel and resurrection, and Paul opens right up. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul talks about a gospel, and what is the gospel? Well, the gospel means good news, and that might be the biggest understatement ever, because good news is that there's no traffic on the way to work. Uh, Good news is you got to raise at work. Good news is that uh, your loved one got out of the hospital. This news overshadows, totally eclipses all of those things, because this isn't just good news. This is the gospel, the good news by which you're being saved. This is saving good news. But what is the good news and what makes it so good? Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul is going to give the Gospel in brief form. I delivered to you as of first importance. That's what I also received. So here's the thing. Here's the first importance, primary thing, that you have to understand. If you never go through the doorway of a church again, if you never listen to another message, this is the central thing that you have to understand That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And there's enough that we can take an hour unpacking just that. Don't worry, we won't. But we do have to understand. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And to understand that sentence, you have to understand sin. What is sin? Sin is everything that I do, that I say, that I think, that I feel, everything that my heart intends or that my body acts on That is contrary, that is opposite, that is other than what God calls good and right and holy. There is a God who created all things. That same God who formed the earth and filled it created man and woman in his image. Out of all of creation, Adam and Eve were absolutely distinct made in the image of God and created for a relationship with Him. And He places them in a garden, a place where they had everything that they needed, not only for life, but for pleasure and for fellowship with Him. And in that perfect environment, there was one rule, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And we know the story that Adam and Eve ate, and sin enters the world, and as soon as there's sin, there's separation. A holy, perfect God cannot be in the presence of sinful, rebellious people. And through sin came death. Adam and Eve that day died spiritually, separated from God, and at that point they were simply waiting to die physically, and that would be a tragic story. Tragic enough if it were just a story of the past, but it's our story as well. You and I, everyone in this room, everyone that has ever been, shares the same problem that Adam and Eve had. We sinned. We fall short. We might justify it, we might excuse it, we might minimize it, we might compare ourselves to make us feel better, but at the end of the day, everyone in this room knows that we are not what we ought to be. And because we are sinful, we are separated. The gospel starts with the universal proclamation that there is a holy perfect God that called and created us for relationship, and that relationship was broken by our sin. That gospel also tells us that there's nothing you and I can do to fix that. It's not a matter of coming to church on Christmas or Easter or 50 Sundays in between there. It's not a matter of giving a certain percentage. It's not a matter of reading the right theology books. It's not a matter of doing enough good in the community that God has placed you in. Because the reality is, if the standard is perfection, anything short of that fails to meet it. And I cannot work my way back to perfection. You say, this doesn't sound like good news, but understand that a right diagnosis is always good news. You can't hope to treat the disease if you can't identify what the problem is. You can shoot down the symptoms. You can treat the external things. But until you get to the root cause, there is no cure. And until we understand the root cause, the primary issue that you and I struggle with, the condition of our soul that is fallen as a result of sin, until we identify and deal with that, there can be no good news. And so the good news starts with that understanding of sin. But then in verse 3, what he says is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Our sins separated us from God and left us with no place to turn. No hope for restoration. No hope for reconciliation in that relationship because we couldn't work our way back. We couldn't be perfect enough. But there was someone who is. Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, the other time that we find our way towards celebration. But He didn't begin in the manger in Bethlehem. John's Gospel says that in the beginning, He was not only with God, but He was God. Jesus Christ, God, very God, who at a particular point in human history took on flesh and became like His creation. He knew tired. He knew hungry. He knew betrayal. He knew joy. He knew sadness. But He didn't know sin. No failure. No shortcoming. No rebellion. Not a thought. Not a word. Not an action that was outside of what God called perfect and acceptable. And yet, He died. And Paul says right there that Christ died for our sins. Do not miss that. Jesus did not die on the cross because the Romans were angry. Jesus did not die on the cross because the Jews hated Him. Jesus did not die because He was a political revolutionary, because He was misunderstood, because He was some kind of political martyr. Christ died for our sins. We sang it in a song so that the wrath of God might be satisfied Because that holy God is a just God and sin must be dealt with. He could not say, well, you are a nice group of people. I'm going to go ahead and give you a pat on the back and let your sins slide. That would make Him something less than just. No. Christ died for our sins so that God might be, as Paul writes in the Romans, just and justifier. Perfectly just, but also the one who satisfies His justice. And Paul brings an end to that line, and he says it's according to the Scriptures. See, this wasn't some last-minute fix. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't surprised. That same holy God is also what we say is omniscient, all-knowing. And before sin even entered the world, the plan for the Savior was in place. And Christ died according to the Scriptures, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophets spoke of one who would come, one who would suffer in the place of his people and by whose stripes he would be healed. Even as far back as Genesis 3, when God said that one day someone would come and crush the head of the serpent that had tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. And so right at the very beginning, Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, but the Gospel doesn't end with His death on the cross. It says in verse 4 that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with those same Scriptures. See, the death of Christ proves the faithfulness of God, and so too does the resurrection Christ was raised again on the third day. And that idea of being raised again, that's what we celebrate today. That is the resurrection. Resurrection is being brought back, raised up from the dead. And not only do we celebrate that today, we celebrate it every single week. There's a reason the church gathers together on Sunday and has from way back in the book of Acts. We commemorate weekly the resurrection of the Lord. We are a people who celebrate the resurrection just in how we do church and when we do church. And that resurrection happened on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures because those same Scriptures that talked about someone who would suffer and die in the place of his people also talk about a living Lord, a Savior who reigns and who rules. See, Christianity is not a faith that celebrates the memory of a dead founder. Central to the idea of Christianity is that we serve a risen and resurrected Lord. And it matters because that gives us a living hope. The author of Hebrews says that Christ is our advocate, the one who pleads our case, and that he ever lives at the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf, to go between for us. Because knowing you and knowing me, how can we approach a holy God? I can barely talk to my wife after I mess up, right? How could we go before a holy God knowing what we are? Well, the reality is you don't need to find a good pastor so that God will listen to you. You don't need to find somebody else to confess your sins so that maybe God will forgive you. You don't need to find some saint to take your prayers to God. God has given His Son to be the go-between. And that Savior that was Raised from the dead, now is the intercessor, the go-between from us to that holy God. See, when we talk about the resurrection, we can't get away from the Gospel. The resurrection, uh, the empty tomb is not just something we kind of tack on to the end of the good news story about Jesus. If we happen to remember the Gospel, uh, demands a resurrection. And so there it is, the foundational truth of why today matters, why it had to happen. Because there is a God, and because we were made in His image, and we fell, and we sinned, and we were separated from Him. Because Christ died according to the scriptures, but because He didn't say dead, He was raised again on the third day according to those same scriptures. And so, when we see the gospel in the resurrection, Paul spends the next part of the chapter talking about why that matters. Why do you and I need that resurrection? Well, the first reason we need the resurrection, the first reason that has to be true is because either God is faithful or He's not. See, if those Scriptures promise a risen Savior and Christ stays in that tomb, you and I have no hope, no lasting hope anyway. The Old Testament promises a risen Savior. Daniel says that there's someone who is going to inherit a kingdom and all authority. Job says that his Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will take his stand on the earth. David talks about a righteous one who will rule the nations, who will not undergo decay. And if the Old Testament talks about a living Savior and we have no living Savior, then we might as well throw out the Old Testament. And all the way through the New Testament, the apostles, Peter, Paul, John, and all the others who write, write about a living Christ, one that they saw with their eyes, one that they touched with their hands. And if that is not the case, then we throw out the New Testament. And if without our Bibles, then we have no hope. We have no foundation for our faith. We have no understanding of who God is or what He's doing in the world. And so the resurrection is absolutely necessary, first, because it proves the faithfulness of God. He is a God who can be trusted to do all that He says He will do. Why else? Not only does the resurrection talk about the character of God, but it reminds us why a resurrection is so necessary for us. Look at verse 20 if you're still in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says Christ has been raised from the dead, and then he uses this word first fruits. Well, first fruits, although we don't use it very often, is exactly what it sounds like. It's the first fruits, it's the first part of the harvest. It's not the whole thing, it's the first part that guarantees the rest that is coming later. And Paul says the resurrection of Christ is like the first fruits, like the down payment, like the promise for what is going to happen later. Because those who are found in Christ find their life in Christ. Paul's going to go on in the chapter to talk about Adam. Back to that first man. And basically what he says is you find your identity in one of two places. One of two Adams. Either the Adam that failed in the garden, who through his failure brought death, or the second Adam, the better Adam, the better representative, Jesus Christ, whose obedience brought life. You and I will be represented by someone, either Christ in life or Adam in death. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, a man has come, also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You and I lived in bondage and slavery to two great universal powers, sin and death. And Christ has overcome both. Through his death and satisfaction of God's wrath on the cross, sin was overcome. And through his resurrection, Jesus Christ overcame the power of death itself. Without the resurrection, you and I have no living hope. You and I have no down payment, no guarantee of our resurrection. And it matters because we need a resurrection. In verse 35 through 41, which I, I won't read all the way through, but in those verses, Paul starts talking about the fact that there are all kinds of bodies: animal, human, earthly, spiritual. And we can look around today, and there's all kinds of bodies in this room. There are young bodies, and there are experienced bodies. There are fit bodies, and there are well-fed bodies male, female, healthy, sick. But you know, all of those bodies have one thing in common, and that is that every single one of those bodies is temporary. Not one of us woke up today feeling like we did 10 years ago. Some of you that are still on the first half of life a little stronger, a little taller than you did 10 years ago. The rest of us that are on the other side of that midpoint maybe know that we don't feel quite as strong, quite as healthy, uh, quite as sure when we take that jump off of the stage in the fellowship hall that our knees will respond like we expect them to. But no matter how we might try to avoid it, no matter how we might try to work out for it, no matter how we might try to medicate it, you and I know that these bodies all come with an expiration date. They're simply not made for eternity. And that's what Paul is saying. The resurrection is necessary because these bodies are not fit and made to last forever. Verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. See, here's why resurrection is so necessary because when this body is planted... Like a seed that's sown in the ground, something different comes after it. The body that's planted is perishable. The resurrection body that we hope for, that we look for, is imperishable. It's lasting. 43, what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. These bodies are plagued and corrupted by sin, and there is dishonor in that. They are raised in glory. Sown in weakness. We don't have to explain that one. We understand our weakness, but raised in power. Sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. What goes into the ground at the end of our lives, however many years God allows us to live, goes into the ground natural, temporary, earthly. What comes from that? The hope that we have in the resurrection is that it's raised spiritual, lasting. Look at verse 50 for a concise statement there. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You and I are not fit for eternity the way that we are. How tragic it would be if we entered into heaven in these bodies. Can you imagine the prospect of eternity with God In a body like these. No, no, no. We have a need for something different, for something better, for something lasting, for something fit to be with God forever. So when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just a nice story. When we talk about the resurrection, it's not just a holiday to sell plastic eggs and chocolate. The resurrection means that my sin was dealt with on the cross. It means that God is absolutely faithful to his word. It means that my Savior is alive and well and that he is coming again in power and glory. It means that I can look forward to a resurrection of my own that overcomes all the weakness and frailty and limitations of this body. And finally, what we'll spend the last couple of minutes looking at is the idea that the resurrection gives us hope that matters for today. The gospel, the hope of the resurrection. Uh, We don't just celebrate because one day everything will be as it should be, although that is true. That hope for the eventual resurrection impacts how we live now, how we think now, how we act now. First of all, there's hope in physical renewal. Behold, he says in verse 51 I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. The message of the Gospel, the hope of the Gospel is wrapped up in this. This world is not the end. We as a church cannot rightly preach that this is your best life. We cannot as a church hold out the hope that somehow if you can muster up enough faith, all of your problems will go away. That the car, the job, the relationship, the health, whatever it is you think you need will somehow be satisfied if only you come to faith in Christ. And here's the reality. Any Gospel that promises you those things is selling you something that's cheap. Because those things only last as long as you do. The Gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to a hope that outshines, outlasts, and surpasses anything associated with this world. Why? Because this world still bears the stain of sin. The most beautiful scenery. The best day. The greatest relationship the finest possession. It's all tainted by sin, and it's all temporary. The gospel speaks to something lasting, which means that if the world takes all of those things, if I barely have enough to meet my physical needs, if I spend the rest of my life in physical discomfort, if the relationship is never restored if whatever your if is and fill in the blank. The gospel says that that's not a loss. Not that it isn't painful. Christianity doesn't pretend that this world is no big deal and that nothing hurts. It simply speaks to the fact that this world is a blip within the scope of eternity. And it promises that none of those earthly pains, none of those earthly shortcomings, none of those earthly disasters can touch what belongs to you for eternity because of what Christ has done. The gospel talks about something secure, settled, reserved. And that matters because while I cannot take away your circumstance, your pain, your struggle, I can speak to you of a hope that penetrates and permeates all of those things gospel that says this world good or bad, joyful or painful is never the end the gospel of the resurrection points us forward to a physical renewal a body an existence that lasts forever there's something even better there's something better even than the hope of a physical renewal of a restored body and that's the hope of spiritual renewal Look at what Paul says in verse 54 to 57 there. When the perishable, the temporary, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, because when physical restoration happens, when that resurrection happens, it means something even greater than a body that lasts, that won't grow old, that doesn't get sore and broken down. It means that spiritually I am finally fully renewed. For the believer, we understand that sin is the worst thing. Suffering isn't the worst thing. Tension, conflict, need... Sickness, those aren't the worst thing. Sin is the worst thing. Sin is the terror that separated me from the God who made me. Sin is the rebellion that alienated me from the one who created me. Sin is the one that continually impacts and severs my relationships, even my human relationships. So while physical resurrection, physical uh, resurrection, the ability to live forever is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's only as good as the one that I get to spend eternity with. And that physical resurrection means that I'll finally be spiritually restored. Not only fit physically to be present for eternity, but fit spiritually to be with God for eternity. Because for the Christian, while sin is the worst thing, the presence of God is the best thing. Not the golden streets. Not harps and wings and sitting on clouds, which is a misunderstanding anyway. Not even the joy of knowing believers from all across the centuries. The greatest thing, the eternally greatest thing is being in the presence of God. being finally fit and cleansed from sin. That's what the death of Christ did. If you were here on Good Friday, it's what we talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The fact that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that you and I are finally fit to be with God. Not because we're finally good enough on our own, but because we've had the righteousness, the goodness, the perfection of Christ placed on us. And when that happens... That's when this comes to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Here's why death is such a fearsome enemy. Here's why death is so universally terrifying, because death is final. And for those who are alienated and separated from God, death feels final, because beyond death comes only the expectation of judgment. When death is an unknown and what is beyond is only vaguely understood, misunderstood, not understood, or maybe perfectly understood, and you know exactly what you deserve, death is a terrifying, fearsome enemy. But the resurrection removes the sting of death. Why? Because it eliminates the power of sin. For the Christian, how could death be a fearsome enemy? Death is merely the opening act into eternity. It's the door that takes me from everything fallen, everything failed, everything temporary, everything perishable, and moves me immediately into the imperishable, the lasting, and the perfect. And so you can see the boast here, the right boast, the godly boast. Death, where is your power? How could death seem fearsome when death simply brings me into the presence of God? And who's that victory through? It's Jesus Christ, the one who defeated death, the one who was raised to life. Jesus Christ, who is the God of life. And finally, this hope for physical renewal, this hope for spiritual renewal is a hope that impacts how we live. This is how he closes. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, because my hope is in Christ and His resurrection, then I know that I'm actually free to live very differently now. Where before I was free in the sense that I could pursue anything except God, now I'm free to be a slave of righteousness. How can there be freedom in slavery? Because this is the freedom to obey. This is the freedom to do what's right The resurrection means that I can give every ounce of my effort, every ounce of my energy, every ounce of my passion toward following after God, and I can know that not a moment of it is wasted. Working for years to do what is right when the world tells you that that is foolish, that it's unnecessary, or maybe that it's not doing any good at all. And we know that not a moment of it is wasted because we're working for the Lord, not for some temporary result. And we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. So I can obey and do it joyfully when the rest of the world condemns me, when the rest of the world mocks me. I can obey and rejoice when I don't see any visible working from my perspective. Because what the resurrection does is it grabs our heads and it forces us to look at a perspective that we don't often have. This world looms large in our eyes. The resurrection drives us forward. And eternal life means that this life will never be a waste. See, the resurrection truth is something that we remember today. It is something we celebrate today. And it really ought to be something we celebrate every day. It's the foundation of the gospel. It's the central truth of Christianity. An empty grave, a risen Savior, and a promise of resurrection yet to come. That's why we celebrate. And so before you leave today, I want you to wrestle with some things. First of all, you need to know the Gospel. And when I say know the Gospel, I need you to know more than the facts. I need you to do more than understand that there is a God... And that you were obligated to obey Him but failed. I need you to do more than know that you're not what you should be. I need you to do more than know that you're a sinner. I need you to do more than know that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross. I need you to know more than the fact that the tomb is empty. I need you to know that in the sense that you respond to it. That Gospel comes with a call. It is a call to come and die. To surrender yourself completely to the God who gave His Son so that you might be saved from your sin. How do I do that? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not a prayer card that you fill out. It's not a mandatory repeat after me. It's not a certain amount of Sundays that you attend. It's not something you did way back in the day, you think, when you were in church that one time or at camp. It is the willing surrender of your life Calling your sin what it is and understanding that you are hopeless outside of the work of Christ. It's repentance, it's a turn towards something else. And it's your whole life. Day by day, walking in faith that that God who saved you will finish the work that he started. Second, if you've heard that message a hundred times and you have responded to the gospel, I would like you to be brought back to the point of joy in that Gospel. I want you to respond to the Gospel as well, not in saving faith for the first time, but in the simplicity of joy that is found in the resurrection. We get so bogged down. Again, the world is big and often pressing, and I'm always focused on the next thing that I have to do because, let's face it, there's always a next thing to do. For the rest of today, Perhaps you should just come back to the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised again according to the Scriptures. That the faithful God who saved us has guaranteed our eternal inheritance, our resurrection, and our presence with him. And finally, we're called to live in light of that gospel. We don't just sit quietly waiting for God to do something at the end of time, We don't just muddle through life, waiting for the day that these physical bodies do expire or until the Lord comes back and gathers his people. You and I have the privilege of working while we wait. And knowing that every good work, every obedient work, no matter how small, no matter how great, is never wasted. That God sees all of it. That God rewards those who seek to please him. It's a remarkable truth. The idea that you and I can do something today that matters for eternity. You'll probably eat something today that will last in your body for a few more weeks or months than you would like unless you get back to the gym. You might do something important in this next week at your work that might be a project that lasts and maybe even has impact on your company for a number of years. You have the opportunity today to do something that lasts for the scope of all eternity. To live a life of obedience to Christ knowing that our labor is not in vain and so we are called as a people not to grow weary in doing good in a world that is often wearying. Today we celebrate the hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ and I hope that you will remember, that you will understand and that you will respond to why that is such a hopeful message. Let's pray. Lord, the fact that the tomb is empty matters. It reminds me of the sin that made... Christ's death on the cross necessary. My sin, my failure. It reminds me of the price that was paid. It reminds me of the perfection of Christ who would die for me. It reminds me of His perfection that death had no hold on Him, that He was raised to eternal life. It reminds me of the power of the Savior who came in humility but will come again in power. It reminds me of the fact that I await a resurrection of my own. Because You have promised and You are faithful. And so Lord, even as we look forward to and long for that resurrection, I pray that you would help us to be obedient every day until that time. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. And we do all of these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen.